All right. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. We are nearing the end of our journey uh, through the letter of 1 Corinthians that began in February. Uh, in fact, we'll finish up right before Thanksgiving, and then uh, that'll lead us right into Advent. If you've been here throughout, you know the context of the letter. If you don't, then a little background. Paul had spent 18 months in the city of Corinth, a burgeoning city in the Greco-Roman Empire that was growing in influence and population, a huge cultural center, a, a huge commercial center uh, in that part of the Greco-Roman Empire. And Paul had spent 18 months there proclaiming the gospel, making disciples of Jesus Christ, and seeing a church started. And then he left to go do other things that the Spirit led him to do. And uh, the church began to experience problems. And we're not familiar with that because obviously we have no issues as the Crossing Church. But apparently they had some issues uh, that were so bad, as Kendrick mentioned last week, quoting a Bible scholar, they were a dumpster fire. And uh, the thing about dumpster fires, uh, they are the worst kind of fires, according to a fireman that told me that once when I used that analogy in a sermon. He said, the thing that's so bad about dumpster fires is you don't know what's in the dumpster. Uh, there can be hazardous materials, explosive materials. You don't know what you're getting into when you're fighting a dumpster fire. But we do know what we got into and what was causing the issues in the Corinthian church. We've seen it throughout this letter. In fact, he spent 14 chapters dealing with issues primarily centered around this idea of disunity in the church. Disunity related to devotion to different leaders in the church. Different factions had sprung up that were devoted to a particular leader. So you had the Cephas or Peter faction and the Paul faction and the Apollos faction. Uh, something that we as a church that has plurality of elders, a church that is organized around different missional communities, must take heed of because it certainly can happen uh, within our body of believers if we're not on guard against it. Uh, unity issues that were in the church that, uh, because they weren't dealing with obvious sin among the members. A man engaged in gross sexual morality with his stepmom. Members suing one another. I had a conversation uh, recently with, um, as a chaplain to a lady in a local church here um, who was sharing with me some of the public sins that were in her church that everyone knew about and leaders knew about and pastors knew about but nobody was dealing with. And I was able to go to a place like 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and say, churches deal publicly with public sin. Or it's not a church. It's just a social club. Corinth struggled to know what was okay regarding singleness and marriage and remarriage. What was okay regarding meat and food that had been offered to pagan idols and pagan worship ceremonies. What was okay regarding the roles of men and women in local worship gatherings. What was okay regarding the use of spiritual gifts within the worship gathering. And all of these issues were causing division among God's people. They were revealing a lack of love that should ha they should have for each other and were causing the clear witness of that church in that culture to be compromised. And Paul is, has been and is pastorally with conviction and grace, calling them to hear, repent, and be the people that he first proclaimed the gospel to when he first showed up in Corinth, to be the church, be this people of God. As we move into this final chapter where he's going to deal with this final problem, this church is struggling with even more clearly uh, understanding who they are in light of the gospel. And you're going to see very clearly a call for centering 
their lives and for us today, our lives around the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we're going to begin in in verse 1 of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that right now you would bless the proclamation of your word in a way that would give glory to Christ alone, not any man, not any church, not any denomination. May Christ be glorified by what we see, what we hear, what we believe, and how it changes us. Do your work today, Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be spending today and next Sunday in this passage, and it's a, it's a fitting book end to this letter. Paul had emphasized the crucifixion back in the beginning of the letter, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And now it ends with an entire chapter focusing on the resurrection. And as we'll see as we walk through this chapter over the next four weeks, the problem in Corinth is you had some who did not believe that someone could be physically, bodily raised from the dead, which honestly is not that hard for us to understand. Like, we have trouble believing that could actually happen. I don't know how many funerals I've been to or how many people I've seen who have died, but I've never been at any of them in a hospital room or a funeral home where I expected they may start moving. And if they did start moving, I would not have been extremely, I would have been extremely uncomfortable. Like, what is going on here? This does not happen. It's beyond our normal human experience. And so it makes sense to us that, no, they don't believe that that can happen. But Paul's point throughout this chapter is, if you don't believe the dead can be raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then this is all a fool's errand. This is all a waste of time. What are we doing here? And Paul is going to defend that, proclaim that throughout this, this long chapter. Um, our faith is in the story of that very thing happening. And Paul's making that point that you lose 100% of Christianity if you can't believe that the dead can be raised. Christianity is not rooted in rules and regulations, our worship services, our ministries we plan, our leaders we follow, or any of the other stuff that comes along with being a church. Christianity is rooted in the actual historical person and work of Jesus Christ. 
that he actually lived, that he actually did the things the Bible says he did. And the Bible is simply an eyewitness account of this, not a story to prop up something that didn't happen, but a a story, a recording of events that did happen that we shared to the whole world. And, and the book proclaims who Christ is, what Christ has done. The church is simply at its most basic essence a people who have come to know the living and resurrected Jesus, who've been changed by him. And now we have lives that are centered around that reality. And now we give our lives to make Jesus known to others through our words and actions. Another way of putting it, the gospel, the person and work of Jesus, are central and essential to who we are as people and what we do as people. The gospel is central and essential to our identity and our mission as God's people. You see this clearly in this passage. Now, Paul begins with some implications for the Corinthians in verses 1 and 2. I actually just want to skip those, if that's okay this week. Just put like a pause button on on verses 1 and 2. We're going to come back to those. I want to begin with verse 3 with what Paul calls something that is of first importance. Meaning, most important. Not first in order but first in preeminence. In doctrine and theology, we have issues that we call open-hand and closed-hand issues. Or you might prefer to think of it in tiers. You know, top-shelf issues are more valuable, more important, down-to-bottom-shelf issues. And there are some doctrinal issues so important, so crucial to our identity as God's people that we would be willing and, if necessary, divide over those issues if there was disagreement or if there couldn't be agreement about what is true and what is right and what is good. The character and nature of God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the triune nature of God, the exclusivity of Jesus alone as Savior, the sinless life of Christ, salvation and justification by grace through faith alone, not the result of works, the inerrancy and authority of the Scriptures, just to name a few. They are so crucial to who we are as Christians, we have to defend them and declare them and potentially divide over them if need be. And and we have done that. That's why we, it's part of the reason we have different denominations and different churches. Because God has intended that the church would be purified in its doctrine through the, the, through the years. But there are many more issues where there could be disagreement on and still have unity. And you've seen Paul walk through those issues in the Corinthian church. But what Paul is dealing with now is one of those close-handed issues. An issue of first importance. So important that to lose this issue is to lose the gospel itself and completely lose our identity as a church. Paul lays out for us the essence of the gospel, and it begins with the reality that Christ died for our sins. Now, that name Christ, which means anointed one, in the Old Testament you saw it as Messiah. It's a very Jewish name associated with Jesus. Christ was not Jesus' last name or his first name, depending on if you prefer Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. But it was a title that described Jesus. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. The one first promised by God all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The one inferred in Genesis 12.1-3. The offspring of Abram by whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. The one spoken of throughout the Old Testament, looked for, waited for by God's people for hundreds and hundreds of years. God's anointed one, the promised one, who would come and make all things right and establish God's kingdom with God's people fully and rightly upon this earth. 
any Jewish person would be excited and fully embrace the idea of God's Messiah coming. In fact, Orthodox Jews today who reject Jesus as Messiah are still waiting for their Messiah to come and are very excited about the potential of that happening. But then you would totally throw them off by saying, Christ died. They have no conception of that. In the first century, they had no conception of that. There was nothing in the mind of a Jewish person in the first century that their Messiah would come and die. Even though Jesus predicted it multiple times throughout the Gospels, his closest followers did not get it or believe him. They were not waiting outside the tomb for him to come out of the tomb. It would be like if someone told you that, if I told you tonight that I'm going to die, and when you come to my funeral in a few days, I'm coming out of the casket. You'd be like, what are you talking about? You're nuts, or this is just a bad sermon analogy, right? You have nothing in your mind that that would actually happen. It was similar for the Jews in the first century. There just was nothing there. Now you had the predictions and prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament, and you had the predictions and prophecies of the suffering servant in the Old Testament, but they didn't see how that was the same person, which was part of God's plan to keep their eyes blinded, to reject their Messiah so that the Messiah would be crucified for them. This is part of why Paul says in chapter 1 of this letter, the idea of Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. The Jews didn't believe in a dead Messiah. The Greeks didn't believe a man could be divine. So both groups of people would 100% reject the idea of Christ died. But we cherish it. We, We sing about it. We sacrifice for this reality. We give our lives to make this reality known. We, we, we center our lives around this reality. Christ died. Why is it something that some reject and some cherish? Because of the next phrase. Christ died for our sins. It's why he died. That's what makes it something we love and embrace and proclaim Christ died for our sins. Where would we be apart from the reality that Christ died for our sins? Where would you be apart from the reality that Christ died for your sins? Have you ever thought about it? Where would we be? Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead And the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Have you ever considered how different your life would be if you had never come alive in Christ? If you were still spiritually dead and living as a child of wrath, storing up wrath for a day of wrath. We who are the guilty ones totally and only deserving God's just punishment because God is holy, righteous, and just. And we are the sinful ones who have only earned and only deserve God's judgment and punishment. We love to think of ourselves much 
highly, more highly than we should. Yes, we are image bearers of God. The only part of creation that bears the image of God. Yes, we have been loved by God enough to send His Son to die for our sins. But yes, by nature, we are also totally infected by the curse of sin and only deserving God's wrath. That's all we have earned. You on your best day have only earned in and of yourself the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. The paycheck that we have earned because of our sin is is and only death. That's it. And we're not only sinners by nature, but we sin willingly and openly and defiantly. The only part of creation that shakes our fist in the face of the Creator and says, my way is better. What I want is more important than what you want, God. I know better than you know. I'm smarter, wiser. I need to be the the ruler of this universe. Only part of creation that does that. And yet, God is rich in mercy and love and does not treat us according to what we deserve or have earned. But shows kindness and grace by sending His Son to take our place, to take our punishment. Christ died for our sins. This is the essence of the substitutionary atonement. An innocent one dying in the place, substituting in the place of the guilty one. God told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you will die. And they did die spiritually. The moment they sinned, cut off from their innocence and their intimate relationship with God, they would one day die physically because they were cut off from the tree of life. But before God kicked them out, out, away from the tree of life, out of the Garden of Eden, He sacrificed an innocent animal to cover, the Hebrew word is atone, to cover their sin, shame, and nakedness. Thus beginning the picture of an innocent one dying to atone or cover the shame and sins of the guilty one. As God's people were called and formed into a nation after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, He gives them His commands and how they will live as His people in in the land He was giving them, knowing they would sin, but not just giving them what they deserve any time they sin, death. Can you imagine if we got what we deserved every time we sinned? Immediate death. But creating a system of sacrifice and atonement through a priest at a temple where year by year they would bring innocent, spotless animals to be killed in their place by the priest at the temple so they could maintain their right standing before God as his people. And this sacrificial system went on for hundreds of years and thousands upon thousands of innocent, spotless animals were slaughtered. The temple was a butcher shop, a bloody place, not for food to eat, not for trophies to be hung on the wall. But these thousands upon thousands of animals were slaughtered because the people sinned. Because of sin. I lied to you. I cheated on you. I gossiped about you. And animals are dying. Innocent animals that have nothing to do with my sins are having to be slaughtered because I'm not getting along with my brother or sister. I'm not getting along with my spouse. I'm not loving and worshiping the Lord God Almighty, the way He deserves to be worshipped. And then one day, this peculiar guy who lived in the wilderness, who ate locusts and wild honey and wore camel's hair clothing, looked at a 30-year-old carpenter from Nazareth and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. No more animals will be killed because He will be killed 
the Lamb of God will be sacrificed. The one who's better than an innocent animal, the one who was us, truly human and truly God, sinless, spotless, even more than an animal. He would take our place. He would receive the scorn and the shame and the punishment and the ridicule and the crushing lashes and the crown of thorns. He would receive all the punishment that we deserve in our place for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He would shed his blood for our blood. He would suffer God's wrath for us in our place. Christ died for our sins. This is why it's precious. This is why we sing. This is why we give. This is why we sacrifice. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, Paul says, which implies that it actually happened. It's not an ethereal idea, a mystical idea. It actually happened. There was a dead body that was pulled off the cross that needed somewhere to go. Where do you put dead bodies? You put them in tombs. Joseph of Arimathea was a real man who gave his tomb for Jesus to be buried. If that blows up, we'll just go somewhere else. I don't know what that's doing. His body was taken off the cross, put in the tomb, sealed, guarded by a Roman guard, and now stands empty. In other words, Corinthian believers, travel down to Jerusalem and see it for yourself. The tomb is empty. Why? Because on the third day, he was raised. Passive voice. He was raised. All of this according to the Scriptures. Scriptures, of course, meaning Old Testament because the New Testament was being written. You can go back to passages in the Old Testament that prophesy and predict the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, which is simply Paul's way of saying this was not happenstance, coincidence. Jesus didn't stumble into these events that he had no control over. This was carried out exactly according to plan, exactly the way God wanted it to be carried out, when he wanted it to be carried out. Kind of like in Acts 2 when Peter is preaching his sermon on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We know it's true because it's in accordance with the Scriptures. And whatever God decrees happens. Whatever God says will happen, happens all the time. Whatever God says is true, is true all the time. This is his show. This is his story. This is his plan. It's his wisdom. It's his goodness being worked out for all people in all places at all times. Even when it seems chaotic and crazy in your life, it's not to him. He sees it all. And he looks at us and, my child, I've got this. You don't have to be worried or anxious or afraid. I've got you exactly where I want you, always working in all things for your good and for my glory. You can trust me. I'm a good dad who will pick you up when you're crying and carry you wherever you need to be carried and take care of you however you need to be taken care of. 
That's who I am as your father. We also know this actually happened because it was seen by eyewitnesses. And the way Paul writes this, it's a list of people that gives credibility to the historical reliability of the death, burial, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. So he says, first of all, Jesus appeared to Cephas, or Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples. Peter, the classic fire-ready-aim guy, lived with a chronic foot-and-mouth disease. Peter often got it wrong, occasionally with God's help got it right, like in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Peter says to Jesus, Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal that, but only the Spirit of God revealed that to you. Peter made a mistake, mistake after mistake. We see him at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus being illegally tried. Peter's down in the courtyard denying he even knows the man on trial to three complete strangers. Jesus is on the cross, suffering for the sins of Peter. And where's Peter? And hiding. Locked rooms, afraid that he would be next. Scared out of his mind. But, but take a second and put yourself in the shoes of these Corinthians believers. What do they know about Peter? Like, we know the whole story, but what do they know about Peter? Well, he's the one who preached the Sermon on the Day of Pentecost. He's the one who's been in prison because he won't shut up about Jesus. The one who's been beaten because he won't shut up about Jesus. He's the one not many years from now would give up his life, crucified upside down, because he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord and my King. Killed as a martyr, no longer hiding and afraid, trying to save his own life, but giving his life away to make Jesus known. What changed, Peter? How do you go from that mistake-ridden, scared, afraid, cowardly disciple to this man who's proclaiming the gospel in the middle of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and then giving the rest of your life away to make him known? What changed, Peter? I saw Jesus. He was alive. And because he was raised after he was crucified and buried, it means everything he said was true. And if everything he said is true, that changes everything. And my life is now changed, Peter would say, because I've been transformed by this risen, resurrected Savior, this King Jesus. Jesus appeared to the twelve, all of whom who were hiding behind locked doors in fear for their own life, but all who would spend the rest of their lives all over the Roman world giving their lives away to make the crucified and resurrected Jesus known to as many as possible, including doubting Thomas, whom tradition tells us took the gospel to India. Thomas, who would not believe the testimony of his apostle-disciple friends, but had to see it for himself, doubting Thomas, who saw Jesus personally one week after the rest of the disciples, and he cried out, My Lord and my God, in John 20. Not something a Jewish man would ever say about another Jewish man, ever. The Lord of me, the God of me, literally is what it reads. What changed in these men? They saw that Jesus had been raised and believed because of the resurrection. Everything was then true, and because everything was true, everything changes. Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time, Paul writes, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. 
Paul's word in the New Testament for the death of a believer, not death, because even death has been so radically transformed by, by Jesus that Paul calls death a nap. Two implications of Paul saying this. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at a time, rules out the hallucination theory. Jesus' followers wanted him to be raised so bad that they kind of wished it into their mental existence. Well, the best hypnotists in the world, the best drugs in the world aren't going to make 500 people at one time hallucinate the same thing. And then Paul adds to that by saying some of them are still alive, Corinthian believers who doubt that they they can be raised. Go find them and ask them yourself. Even more evidence that this really happened. Jesus appeared to James, Paul writes. Who is James? The early church knew that this was the half-biological brother of Jesus, the author of the book of James. Now, there was a Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. That James was an early leader in the church but was killed by Herod in Acts 12. This James, the half-brother of Jesus, shows up on the scene in Acts 15, goes on to write the book of James. Part of Jesus' biological family, who throughout the Gospels were not his disciples, did not follow him or worship him as Messiah and King. In fact, they were often trying to pull him back. Jesus, brother, this is getting out of control, man, don't you think? All these people, these followers, this movement, things are saying about you, don't you think this is a little bit beyond yourself? Haven't you gone too far with this? Why don't you come back here where it's safe with us? All of his family was telling him that throughout the Gospels. But in Acts 1.14, it tells us that Mary and the brothers of Jesus, Mary the mother of Jesus and the brothers of Jesus were gathered in the upper room with the rest of the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. What changed? James saw the resurrected Jesus and knew If that were true, everything was true. And if everything is true, everything changes. I mean, what would you have to do to convince one of your siblings that you're in fact God? They've lived with you. They know you better than anybody knows you. Aren't those the people who know that we're the furthest away from God? They had seen Jesus grew up. They knew he was sinless. You know, he's the firstborn, so he's older than them. Maybe he just thought he's just the firstborn. You know how firstborns are. They think they're perfect, and so they can convince their siblings that they're perfect. So maybe that was it. And I never really saw him sin. And then he goes around proclaiming the gospel and doing miracles and signs and wonders. And then he's killed like insurrectionists were done by the Romans in that day. But then he rises. Jesus appeared to all the apostles. That was part of what gave them credibility and authority as capital A apostles in the early church, that they had seen Jesus with their own eyes. And then lastly, Paul mentions himself in verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now that word for untimely born is a word that can mean abortion or terminated pregnancy. So some say Paul is using this to refer to himself in his his weak physical presence that his critics would often make fun of him about. So Paul is basically saying he even appeared to me, this pathetic looking human being that I am. But the term can also refer to a pregnancy that goes beyond the due date, an extended pregnancy. And Paul could be referring simply to the fact that he appeared to me, last of all, the apostles. Paul, as he would say in the next verse, verse 9, was a persecutor of the church. A zealous Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, didn't just not believe Jesus was the Messiah, but stood by with approval while the first Christian martyr was stoned to death, Stephen, in Acts chapter 8. 
So at that time, he was called Saul. That was his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. So Paul didn't change his name when he became a Christian. But he was a, an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he went by his Roman name as he traveled throughout the Roman Empire to spread the gospel. But Saul stood by while Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death, and the people laid their coats at his feet. He was unquestionably an enemy of the church, God's people, and the gospel. Could probably make an incredible argument from the Old Testament why Jesus could not be the Messiah. And all these people running around saying he's the Messiah need to be wiped out. On his way to Damascus to arrest and imprison even more of them, in Acts chapter 9, he is stopped cold, dead in his tracks by Jesus himself. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you can read the rest of Acts, and you see Paul transformed into a leader who would take the gospel beyond the Jews to the Gentiles and spread it throughout the known Roman world and write half of the New Testament. In May of 2011, U.S. Special Forces found and killed Osama bin Laden. What if the news that night were instead, U.S. Special Forces have found Osama bin Laden and he's pastoring a church in Abbottabad, proclaiming the gospel and planting churches all over Pakistan, and he wants to come to America and become an American citizen and attend an American seminary. That is a little bit of an idea of how shocking it was for Paul to become a follower of the way. For Paul to become a Christian, a little Christ, and then give his life to make Christ known. In fact, Paul was so, so much an enemy of the church and so known by the church as an enemy of the church that they had trouble receiving him at first. It took some time to trust him. He's not just lying to get his way in here and get more names in order to persecute and imprison more Christians. What changed, Paul? What do you attribute this to, Paul? He saw the resurrected Messiah and knew everything was true and everything changes. As he writes in verse 10 and 11, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, talking about the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is why this chapter is one of the great defenses of the historical reliability of the person and work of Jesus. How else do you explain these transformed lives? How else do you explain the explosion of the early church? How could they have made that happen? They had no power, no military might. They didn't pass legislation or elect the right people. They were mostly poor and despised, imprisoned, beaten, abused, marginalized, ridiculed, and ostracized. And yet, the entire Roman Empire was turned upside down in the first century by one simple message. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how he has changed our lives and can change yours as well. The gospel. It's the only explanation. The gospel, which 100% depends on being historically true, that Jesus really did live and really said the things he said and did the things he did, was really crucified, dead, and buried, and rose bodily and physically, if you take any one of those things out, it didn't happen, and we are, in fact, a joke. 
But because all of those things are true, we are, in fact, the church whom Jesus said he would build and whom he said the gates of Hades would not prevail against. And that changes everything about who we are and what we are called to do. And we are his people sent with this same message that's been proclaimed for 2,000 years, sent to everyone everywhere with the greatest message the world has ever heard. That's an essence of who we are. Sure, it's much more complicated than that. That's also the gospel. Simple enough for a child to hear, believe, and come alive, but complex enough for us to spend all of our lives mining the riches and the depths of it. This is the essence of the gospel message here in 1 Corinthians 15, but certainly it's much more complex than that. The gospel is God's story of what he has done and has been doing through his son Jesus to redeem redeem creation. It is this big, huge, massive, expansive creation, fall, redemption, restoration story that encompasses all people at all times in all of human history. But the gospel is also very, very personal. It's also about you and God and your relationship with him and becoming part of God's community that we are as this church and other churches gathered around our city and around the world this morning. The gospel is big and the gospel is small. And so I ask you this morning, what about you? You you haven't seen the physical resurrected body of Jesus like these people did with your own eyes. But Jesus told Thomas when Thomas demanded evidence to believe in John 20, 29, Have you, Thomas, believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas was blessed to have seen and touched and believed and confessed, my Lord and my God. And in the same way, we are blessed because we believe the eyewitness evidences of those who did see and believe. In other words, we aren't shortchanged or lesser because we haven't seen him with our own eyes. We've seen him with the eyes of faith. And that's all that's required until the blessed day when we, we, we actually will see him with these eyes. So what about you this morning? Have you seen him through the testimony of those eyewitnesses? Have you believed? Are you living as though the resurrection really happened? Are you experiencing his life in your life? Or if somehow a box of bones were dug up in the Middle East and 100% of the world's experts, Christian and non-Christian, said unequivocally, without a doubt, these are the bones of Jesus Christ the Messiah, the son of Nazareth, from Nazareth. So the Christian myth about him being raised from the dead we know is now false. And everyone says, yeah, it's true. It's just a joke. Could you continue in your faith, in your Christianity? Could we continue as a church? Is your Christian life so constructed that it's just rituals and routines and rule following and behavior modification? And it's not really dependent on a resurrected Savior and Christ alive in you. Guys, if that's you this morning, guess what the remedy is? The gospel. (laughs) That he is still alive. 
and that he loves you. And he's come to save you and to give you life and to reawaken what's dead in you and to give you hope where you're hopeless and to give you encouragement where you're discouraged and to fill your heart with his love and joy and peace and hope and everything you need to enjoy being his people and to enjoy spreading his message and to enjoy being a church and to love and worship him. The resurrected Christ, the crucified Christ, the gospel makes all the difference in who you are and what you do, in who we are and in who what we do. Is that your reality? Is that your experience? May God make it so this morning, if it's not. Father, we thank you so much that when we're saying this word, Father, when we're speaking of this man, Jesus, we're not talking about someone who, in history alone. We're talking about someone alive right now, at the right hand of the Father, right now, interceding on our behalf. Someone right now who wants to fill this room with his presence as we sing songs about him, as we magnify him through prayer and communion and giving and sacrificing for his behalf. Someone who wants to walk with us as we leave this place to help us be husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and students who are making an impact for him in this city to make his name known. We thank you, Jesus. We don't worship a dead God. We thank you. You are alive. And we are your people, so we are alive in you. And so come and make us this people that we love you and we love each other with such a love and such a life that our city and our world is transformed. We ask that that will be true of every person in this room. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.